Welcome to the November 2021 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. I'm Lisa Louise Cook. You know, many people have family stories of Native American heritage in their family tree, but how can you be sure? Author Judy Niemermann is here to share tips for helping you find your ancestors who belonged to the United States' five largest indigenous tribes. Then your DNA guide, Diane Southerd, will be here to tell us about the third-party DNA tool called DNA Painter, and she's going to answer the question, should you be using it? Then we'll explore some of the best genealogy websites for state research with Rick Kroom. He's the author of Family Tree Magazine's new 75 best websites list. And whether you want to know more about family search, land records, or historical newspapers, Amanda Epperson has some great Family Tree University courses to tell you about. But first, let's start off with some tree talk with social media editor, Rachel Christian. We always like to kick off our episodes by hearing from you over on social media. And here to tell us what you guys have been talking about is our social media editor, Rachel Christian. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Lisa. How's it going? It's going great. We've got a jam-packed episode today that I'm excited about. And as always, I know you're out there talking to our listeners and our readers. What are you asking them about this month? As our listeners may or may not know, November is NaNoWriMo which is National Novel Writing Month. And so it's a month where we here at Family Tree really like to focus on writing family history and all the different forms that that takes. And, you know, one thing that I feel like genealogists often forget is that their story is as much a part of their family's history as their ancestors. So we ask our social audience if they have documented their own history for future generations, and if so, how they did it. So we got a couple answers. Our follower, Jeanette, had some great ideas on Facebook. She says she's been um, filling out the prompts in a book called To Our Children's Children by Bob Green, uh, which is a great option. She's also um, done the 52 Ancestors Challenge um, from Amy Johnson Crow, which is another great um, way to preserve your own family's history. Um, For those that aren't familiar with that, it's essentially just a prompt for every week of the year uh, to get, you know, give you ideas and get you writing. Um, she also said she maintains several family Facebook groups um, and is, you know, collecting stories via that. Um, and that her mother actually is slowly and surely documenting their family stories through biographies about her grandparents and uh, just a lot of great ideas. Another idea that I encountered, which um, was not in response to our questions, but just something I saw on social was someone said that they have been writing letters to their granddaughter and they are preserving their family stories and her stories um, in that medium, which I thought was just a gorgeous idea to, you know, write letters to the future generation about your life and, you know, those family stories that maybe don't make it into a research paper, but that are, you know, part of your history all the same. So. Those were some great ideas that I feel like might be of interest to our audience. You always have great questions that you put out there that generate so many wonderful ideas from our audience. I love how people are sharing and how everybody can benefit from the conversation. How can everybody listening connect with you on social media? 
Sure. Yeah. Um, in the show notes, I will leave links to these questions in particular. We posted them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, and if our readers are interested, we have an article on familytreemagazine.com. It's a list of things that at the bare minimum, you should write down about yourself for posterity. So even if you're not a writer, it's just a list of questions and basic information that you should write down uh, at some point in some form, because that will preserve valuable information for future generations. So, you know, where you went to school and, you know, your notes on historic events that happened in your life and things that will be really valuable, but that we too often forget to write down about ourselves. And I will uh, make sure that's in the show notes as well. Oh, that's great. And you know, you make a good point. Uh, we do such a good job finding the information and recording the information about our ancestors. And and we sort of forget that we're going to be one of the future ancestors. So that's a great reminder. Thank you so much, Rachel, for sharing. Oh, thank you for having me. In the November-December 2021 issue of Family Train Magazine, author Judy Niemer-Munn provides tips that'll help you find ancestors who belong to one of the United States' five largest indigenous tribes. Here to tell us more about how to research your Native American ancestors is Judy Niemer-Munn. Welcome to the show, Judy. I'm so happy you're here. I'm excited to be here, Lisa. Thank you for inviting me. You are the go-to person on uh, doing our Native American research. You've written a terrific article in Family Tree Magazine. And congratulations. I'm sure people have been thrilled to get it because there's always, you know, stories and families and people think, oh, do I have Native American ancestry? I bet you hear that a lot. I hear it quite a bit, quite a bit. Yep. A lot of people, well, and a lot of people certainly it's a, it's a story in the family. And yeah, they may, their ancestors may have lived on or near um, a reservation or reserve, as it's called in Canada. But, um, you know, they may have been a school teacher or run the trading post or any number of other jobs. So, but I'd like to help them discover that too. Exactly. Well, let's start at the beginning. You named your article The Five Tribes, and you're really talking about the five largest tribes, right? So I'd love to have you explain to everybody, who are the five tribes, and how many total tribes are there, let's say, in the U.S.? Well, so numbering the tribes is in the multiple, you know, like well over 500, right? So there's a process of recognition that happens on the state and the federal level, and it's a very um, involved and legal process. So recognized on the federal level are 594 tribes. And the great bulk of those are in Alaska, where peoples were very isolated, of course, because of not only the territory, but just the distances. So, um, but that's the number that are, you know, authorized for help, resources uh, from the federal government. There is another whole group that are, have been authorized at the state level, but then many of them are working toward the federal certification as well. So that kind of recognition at different levels gets to different benefits. 
And then, of course, uh, you know, we're talking about five particularly large groups that have land masses that, um, you know, certainly have been knocked down significantly because treaties, all the treaties have been violated. So the current land holdings are very much smaller than the tribes originally utilized. But the five largest tribes have continued to grow. All the tribes are continuing to grow. But genocide being what it was, they were all the tribes were pretty devastated. And mm-hmm. so, you know, families are growing, and most of our Native families are quite large. My family's 16 kids in the... Um, in my well, in my brother's family, my family's kind of small because we are partially European. My dad's family is European, and my mom's family is half European. Um, my mom's family are Lakota and Metis from Canada, and um, they met in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. So, um, so this is sort of home and not home. North America is clearly home. And um, so we had people that were on the outside of the fort that was created in Detroit when it first originated. So I had people outside the fort and inside the fort. I had an ancestor that died there and she's buried um, in downtown Detroit. So who make up the five largest tribes that you really kind of focused in on? And are they significantly larger tribes um, pretty dominantly so, and in land holdings as well. So the largest is the Navajo or Diné. And um, they have the largest land holding of all. Um, and they are unique in that when the federal government removed them, they actually then later let them go back to their original territory. So that is unique among any of the tribes. Mm-hmm that they were removed, but then allowed to go back to their original place. So they're the biggest. The Cherokee are the next biggest. They're calling themselves Salagi. Um, The Lakota, my people, many people know them as Sioux, are the next. And we have the second largest landmass. And it's divided among seven sub-tribal groups, or what we call council fires. And then um, the fourth largest group is the Ojibwa, some people call Chippewa, um, which is a, um, a linguistic connection to the Anishinaabe, which is a larger group, and they're the dominant group here in Michigan. And then um, the Choctaw, who are part of those five tribes that were forced moved to Oklahoma. And the Cherokee was in that group as well. Right. Okay. And, you know, and as you talked about them, I know you were giving us a couple of different variations on the names. And that kind of brings me to names, because obviously in genealogy, you know, we deal with different ancestors who have name variations, spelling variations, that they have nicknames. And I imagine this kind of thing occurs also in Native American research. And it sounds like even within the names of the tribes themselves, tell us a little bit about what to look for and why we see those name variations. Right. So the the names that most people are familiar with, so Navajo, Sioux, Cherokee, you know, all of that, those names were given to the tribes, um, mostly by either other tribes or the colonial uh, conquerors, military people. And it was based on what they thought they heard, probably. And then certainly as uh, trapper traders and military people and uh, colonists 
learned enough of the language, they would say, well, what do you call those people? And so then they'd get the name from another tribal group or another, you know, connection. So the names that I referred to when, you know, secondarily are the names that we refer to ourselves as. So they generally translate in our own languages as something to the effect of the people or the original ones or the first ones or us, you know, our people. Mm-hmm. Um, so genuinely in our language, you know, it's that kind of translation. So as an example, in Lakota, um, that word means friend or ally. So that's our reference to ourselves. It's our kinship to all of us as a group. But, you know, it means friend or ally. Kola or Koda in the other dialect or Kota in the third dialect uh, all means friend. And so Lakota means my or our. And so, you know, certainly the National Park Service has a big map that they sell. And all of the tribal sort of jurisdictions are located on that big map. But they're located on that big map using the words of the colonists, the military people, the other tribes. So there is, um, so I gave reference to it in the article that um, there are maps available that are based in the naming of the, that the tribes use for themselves. So the point genealogically is that when you're looking for records and certainly using wonderful techniques like using Google and a variety of search engines, you have to switch back and forth between them because the records are derived and named based on a variety of systems, right? So it depends on who's naming them, what they know about the culture, what they know about the record set. Um, So if it's perhaps, you know, a tribal group from the East that are talking about my people, then it's probably going to be logged in under the word Sioux. If it's something that our people created or recordings from our elders or something like that, more likely it's going to be referencing Lakota. So, you know, it's that sort of, we have to keep that in mind, just like with surnames, we have to use alternate spellings, change out some of the vowels, you know, move things around a little bit. So even with our, you know, our tribal names and our territories and the names of the way our villages were set up and things like that, you have to just use constant layers of name changes and variations just to get at what you're hoping to find. So you really have to do your homework and know what those possibilities are. And you mentioned, you know, Googling. I was, I was thinking the same thing that uh, I always tell people, put your, if you can't find something, put yourself in the shoes of who might have that and how are they going to talk about it on their website? And it's the same idea, right? We kind of have to put ourselves in the shoes of whoever would be creating the records and publishing the records. Exactly. And, you know, and even to that point, then creating and publishing the records, then, okay, are they in an archive, a library, some other setting? And how do they index it? What are they using? Right? And again, the whole aspect, too, of um, you know, just as recently as the early 1900s, my people didn't write down anything. We have a very oral tradition. I can name my ancestors orally going back, you know, 16 some generations. We didn't write that stuff down. We taught it to each other. That's part of what many of the tribal peoples do, like during the winter, you're working on 
things indoors and sitting around and chatting. And so that's how it's instilled in the kids. And that kind of information might thankfully, due to recordings that have been done of elders telling stories and talking about their lives and all of that, it might exist somewhere. But who logged it in and what name did they use and how did they archive it and what did they index it with? And so, yeah, you have to be really good at sort of listening to how something might have been pronounced and then thinking about how that works. So it's a classic genealogy technique, right? It's just that it's a bigger deal with, you know, doing Indian research because you have to think about a lot more variations for people that didn't speak our language as their first language. Great point. Okay, so you talked about uh, the fact that uh, many different universities or um, maybe even the WPA or somebody had uh, gone back maybe in the early 20th century and done some interviews that would be kind of in those other resources that you talked about. But you started off in talking about census. And I got the impression that census records are as primary and critical in Native American research as they are in genealogy in general. Will you tell us a little bit about what we should be looking for in terms of census records? Well, certainly the census records are are important for all of us as genealogists, and they help to place our people in time, right, and in a location, a geography. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, remembering that you're going to have to work on spelling variations, but there are, you know, particular census records that are available that help to give special schedules. So the 1900 and the 1910 census records have special schedules related to Indians. And we'll often give the name of the tribal group, again, not our names for ourselves, but the ones that the white settlers gave us. And, um, and those records can give us some indication of family relationships, certainly just as other genealogists look at the, at the records. The challenge for us, however, is that because of the way our naming systems have worked and how they've developed through time, some people will be listed in the household, and it looks like maybe they aren't even related to each other because they'll have different last names, right? In our tribal culture... Some of us don't have the same last name as our direct family members. So that's something to pay attention to on the census record to see that those people stay together across time. Do they first appear in the 1900 census? They're showing up again together in 1910, 1920. Maybe they're living next door because the family just got big but they're all sticking together. Similar to, you know, Elizabeth Schoen Mill's wonderful fan club, right? But in in Native culture, it's also an issue of um, naming conventions. So, you know, we can go through our life. We're born with one name. We get older, you know, kind of a transitional name that we'll go through, maybe inherited from someone in the family. Then as an adult, we might get another name. We have a ceremonial name. There's a variety of ways that that changes over time. So you have to really pay attention to who the family groupings are so you can sort of track people as they're moving together across time. And a lot of our people, thankfully, certainly in the, you know, the early 1900s anyway, did move around that much. They were restricted on reservations. That was part of, unfortunately, the oppression that they went through. But it helps us to keep the families intact and to locate them as groups. Um, 
So yeah, the census records are very important, and certainly pre-1900, there aren't as many um, censuses of Native peoples, although they do appear. And the challenge of that, excuse me, is that um, some of those records, while handwritten by Indian agents, they were later then typed so classically, okay, I'm seeing a typed record that's not original source. What did they make mistakes, right? So finding the original records can help if they still exist. Um, but if it's typed, you know, alert, alert, you know, look for something else. <laughs> and they might have done spelling variations or they might have, whoever the Indian agent was on site, write it out a certain way. It was maybe then sent at some point to be typed by a clerk who then later had to send it to the federal government. So there were regular reports to Congress in the 1800s. And so there are records of compilations of families and relationships back in that time. Notably, our women get left off in some cases um, because the men were the ones that were interacting with the outsiders, right? So lots of times you'll find the men um, tallied on some kind of list. I found my ancestors, male ancestors, referenced in Library of Congress records, which is not a usual source that some genealogists would use. But notably, I found one of my ancestors on a report to Congress about the settlement of the various tribal peoples. And he, you know, four generations ago, this man by, went by a single name, Woptika. And, you know, so how do you spell Woptika? You know, and, you know, there's any number of variations on that. But I just, I, I use the wonderful technique. I think I, I was at Roots Tech or something and had a conversation with you and like, well, Google it. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, that opened a whole new world. So anyway, so I Googled his name spelled in variations. And that's how I found the Library of Congress record. I didn't have to go to the National Archives or doing it. It was online. And I actually even found a photograph of the original first home, which is now a ceremonial location for us, on our land allotment on the Pine Ridge Reservation. So had I not Googled it, yeah, it was there. Maybe eventually I would have found it. But because I Googled his name, boom, up came all this stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's important to use outside of the regular records, but the regular records that we all use as genealogists, census records, birth, marriage, death, all of that, are valuable for, you know, tracking Native peoples to a point. But when you get back pre-1900, things get a little bit shakier because of... A, we weren't members of churches. We have our own deep spirituality, but it wasn't a function of writing down this birth or this marriage or whatever. Everybody in the community knew who they were and knew when they were born and where and all of that, but we didn't keep that as paper. So when the missionaries came in, um, some of that is a function of attempts to convert people to Christianity, certainly, but then baptizing them, naming them, all of that began happening. So, so the records vary by tribal group. The eastern tribes were affected first by the, uh, the colonization of the east coast, and then as you move west, then you start seeing that effect, too. Well, 
This has been wonderful. Again, all of you can read this wonderful article about the five tribes in the Family Tree Magazine. This is November, December 2021 issue. And Judy, is there somewhere where they can read more or learn more about you? Do you have a website? Yes, I have a website, www.lineagejourneys.com. Judy, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Lisa. I really enjoyed it. In addition to DNA testing websites, there are also DNA tools available from other vendors. And in today's DNA Deconstructed segment, Diane Southard is here to tell us if DNA Painter, which is one of these third-party tools, is something we should be using. Welcome back to the show, Diane. Thanks, Lisa. Always happy to be here. Okay, so start us out with what exactly are third-party DNA tools? Yeah, so so there's lots of them actually. And it's exciting because it means that people who have big brains and experience with computer programming are interested in helping us as genealogists make better use of our DNA and, and really taking some of the burden, I guess, off of our testing companies to, you know, create these tools that maybe not everybody wants or needs or understands, but maybe serve a smaller, more, usually more advanced group of people within the community. So it doesn't make sense for a testing company to dump a bunch of money into a product that only serves a very small fraction of their customers. But there are us, you know, these customers out here who want these products. And so it's been really fun to see places like DNA Painter show up and kind of fill this need in the community to do a little more advanced analysis than maybe um, the average DNA test taker wants to do. Absolutely. Now, DNA Painter, I know that's been around for a little while. What exactly do they do? What do they offer? Well, it started out by uh, just offering a place basically to host some of the results of a project or a research project essentially started by Blaine Bettinger. And we call it now the Shared Santa Morgan Project. So this was something that Blaine started many years ago in an attempt to gather some data to help us better understand the correlation between the amount of centimorgans that we share with someone, that measure of DNA, and our relationship. And so he gathered all of this data. So how much DNA do you share with your second cousin and your first cousin once removed? And so everybody started dumping all of this data to Blaine and he was keeping it in a spreadsheet and, you know, trying to report it on his website, which worked for a while. But then um, Johnny Pearl, who administers the DNA Painter website and Leah Larkin, who kind of helped with all the back end stuff said, hey, we can make this interactive. We can make a tool that makes it really easy for you to just put in the amount of DNA you share with someone and we'll spit back to you your relationships. And so they worked really hard together with Lane to create this DNA painter website that could essentially give you this information right away and make the tool really interactive. And that's probably what DNA painter is most used for and most known for today is that shared Santa Morgan project data still lives there and is updated and has a lot of, a lot of value to, to anybody in the community. Interesting. And I know there's a, a free and a, a paid version. So I guess the question is, do we need DNA Painter? And what do you recommend in terms of the free or the subscription? Right. So there's a lot of other tools at DNA Painter. There's a, a tool to paint your chromosomes if you want to take specific segments that you've identified 
and, and put them on a, a nice, I guess, a, a tool that allows you to, to kind of draw out how your chromosomes look, depending on the different DNA segments you share with different cousins. Um, there are some other kinds of advanced tools that you'd have to pay for. But I have found that for all of the uses I have for DNA Painter, I can just use the free version. And most people will fall into that category. But sometimes, even though I can use the free version for free, I like to donate. I just think DNA Painter is a wonderful tool and it's not that expensive. And so I like to just support them by paying that membership fee, just because I think it's a great idea. And they're, they're putting a lot of great tools out there. Even if I'm not personally using them for my genetic genealogy research, I know that they are valuable to other people. Exactly. I agree. And, you know, how great to be able to take that DNA test result and yes, analyze it on the DNA testing website, but then be able to do more with it. I mean, that's just, that just makes it really, really interesting. All right. So this is DNA Painter we've been talking about, and uh, we're going to have a link to Diane's article in the show notes for this episode. Uh, it's uh, part of the DNA Q&A on familytreemagazine.com. And the article is, do I need DNA Painter? And I think she's kind of answered the question for us, but there's lots of detail there in terms of some of these different features that we've been talking about. So helpful as always. Thank you so much, Diane. No problem, Lisa. Talk to you next month. In our Best Genealogy website segment, we're going to take a look at the brand new 75 Best State Websites list. And this was published in the November-December 2021 issue of Family Tree Magazine. Here to tell us all about it is the author, Rick Groom. Hi, Rick. Hi, Lisa. Gosh, Rick, I'm looking through this list, and I know that there's a lot of great content here. I imagine that the job of whittling down the field to the Best 75 State-specific uh, online resources for researching our ancestors gets harder and harder every year. What kind of criteria were you using? What were you looking for in this year's list? We used to be happy just to find indexes with names that would lead us to original records. But now there are really a lot of digitized um, images that you can view online. So um that's what we really look for now. For example, um, we've found things like digitized vital records, wills, family Bible records, also diaries, letters, photographs, a lot of sources that can give you insights into um, your ancestors' daily life. You might even find a picture of an ancestor or a diary or letter written by one, or you might find these materials for people who are living in the same place and same time period as your ancestors, so they can still give you um, an idea of what life was like for your, your ancestors. You're right. I mean, in the early days of these state websites um, and resources, like you said, it was a listing, but oh my gosh, there's so much content here. I was looking at you listed calisphere.org under California. I'd never heard of that. And Wow, they had a ton of imagery and records and things. Um, let's have you maybe tell us about some of your favorites. Which ones are kind of standout websites for you this year? Um, you mentioned the Calisphere collection, and um, it, it's really terrific. It has California letters, diaries, photos, and other sources. 
and it's grown by nearly a half million items over the last year. Um, another collection that's growing fast and is always impressive is the Louisiana Digital Library. It has family histories, oral histories, city directories, and it has nearly tripled in size over the last year to over 400,000 digital items. And um, I could give you an example of the kind of material you can find on some of these sites. Um, For example, um, the Iowa Digital Library has a very large collection of old letters and other records. For example, I came across um, a letter written by a, a Civil War soldier named Frank Malcolm. He wrote to his wife, There's been some excitement in camp the last few days. Captain Morse, chief of a band of robbers, has been loitering near our picket lines for some time. He captured two of our men on Monday last and two of the finest horses in the regiment. He continues, the men were recaptured on the following day by a scouting party, but the horses were lost. So here um, you get a firsthand account of this soldier's experience in the Civil War through a letter that he wrote to his wife back home. Gives you a perspective, doesn't it? Because even if it's not your ancestor, just reading something like that gives you a sense of the strain and the challenges they faced daily. For sure. Um, uh, I can give you another example here. Um, A search of the University of North Carolina's digital library on American slavery um, could even turn up a physical description of your ancestors. Uh, It includes, um, among the records on that website, a runaway slave advertisement in the Wilmington Daily Journal newspaper of May 18th, 1864. And this ad says, $500 reward ran away from the subscriber early in March, a Negro man named Peter, known as Peter Croom, formerly belonging to William Croom of Long Creek, said Negro is aged about 24, color dark musty, height five feet, six to eight inches, weight about 140 pounds, eyes small and close together. So that was an ad placed in a newspaper in North Carolina during the Civil War. The owner offered a $500 reward to um, get his runaway slave back. And it does even include a physical description of that slave. So that's the uh, UNC Greensboro Digital Library on American Slavery. And you've got so many websites here. What are some of the new ones? Because I know that some of these you've had in past issues, and they are still as robust today. But what are some of the new websites that have made the list this year? Yes, this year, we broadened our coverage to include not just states, the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico, but also U.S. territories, too. Um, So if you're researching ancestors in, say, American Samoa or Guam, um, you might find some helpful websites here. For example, a website called American Samoa Genealogy um, has a number of records and yearbooks, plus links to key resources and collections for Samoan ancestry. 
Let's see, there are a number of good news sites here. For example, a website called Michiganology. It lets you search and view more than 10 million records on the site, including death records older than 75 years. Let's see, the Ohio Genealogical Society's site. Uh, well, membership in the society gives you access to various record collections, including vital probate, tax, and military records. The Oregon Historical Society Digital Collections, um, they include a variety of resources for family historians, including photos, oral histories, letters, and diaries. Uh, the South Carolina Digital Library has over 225,000 digitized items, and they include books, photos, manuscripts, family Bible records, maps, oral histories, and yearbooks. Um, the collections include Civil War era letters and the WPA Federal Writers Project on African American life in South Carolina. Um, those are a few examples. Um, the Denver Public Library digital collections are also very good. Um, in addition to photographs and records documenting the lives of Coloradans, the site has indexes to marriage, cemetery, mortuary, naturalization, obituary, draft, and pioneer records. So most of these websites are free, and they're usually sponsored by, let's say, a state historical society or a state library or maybe a large genealogical society. And as you can see from these examples, a lot of the sites we've selected as the best um, among the state genealogy sites really do have large collections of digitized records. And these are a kind of thing you probably won't find on the big subscription sites like Ancestry or Family Search. And you might not even be aware um, that these records exist, but since they're usually indexed by names, it's worth visiting all of the sites that pertain to um, your family history, the states where your ancestors lived, search on your ancestors' names, if you don't find those names, search on related topics that could lead you to something that might give you some insights into your ancestors' lives. Search on the towns where they lived or churches that they belonged to or um, occupations that they followed. Those are great ideas. And, you know, you make a really good point that many of these um, state sites that are oftentimes nonprofit, they're free, they get other funding, but they have really unique collections. They're not necessarily just making all of these available to the big genealogy websites. They are unique to their site. So it's definitely worth a look. Well, this is terrific. The, the article is called A More Perfect Union. Rick has put together all the 75 uh, best websites and resources online for this state-focused and the U.S.-focused research. And you will find it in the November-December 2021 issue of Family Tree Magazine. Always great to talk to you, Rick. Thank you so much for sharing the list with us again this year. You're welcome, Lisa. It was fun.
Well, there are some great new courses coming up over on Family Tree University. So let's head over to the editor's desk where Amanda Epperson, the e-learning producer, can tell us more about them. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Lisa. How are you today? Doing great and uh, wrapping up a really fun episode. And it sounds like you've got some some great and interesting courses coming up over at Family Tree University. So I'd love to have you kind of give us an update. Yeah, we have some great courses coming up in December for those of you who don't have enough to do during the holidays or are inspired by visiting your relatives during the holidays. We have Become a Family Search Power User coming up with Rick Kroom. It's a very popular course that will walk you through how to use familysearch.org better and to its full advantage. We have another great course on U.S. land records with Lisa also, which is really great if you want to learn about your ancestors' property, and that can help you investigate where they came from, who they might be connected to within the community. And then a new course coming up called Newsworthy Genealogy. It's about finding your ancestors in historical U.S. newspapers. So it'll walk you through using like where to find these newspapers, which ones even existed. So you know to look for them because there have been so many newspapers in U.S. history, particularly in the 19th century. You might not even know which ones existed at the time your ancestors lived in a particular place. So that will walk you through the process of finding the newspapers and then where to find them either online in real life in an archive, you know, a print version, or maybe even where you can find some printed indexes that may have been published by a local genealogy society. So that I'm very excited about that course, and that will be taught by Gina Philibert Ortega. And then to carry you into the new year, we have some great courses to get you started. So a Get Started in Genealogy course, if you're new. Um, the course I teach, Research Your Scots-Irish Family History. So if you have any of those pesky Scots-Irish Family History, we'll try and help you find them because they are very difficult to find. And then an organizing course, and everyone always needs to get organized, particularly in January. Very popular New Year's resolution. Oh, that's a good idea. And you know, the great thing about these courses is you're getting an opportunity to be taught by some of the most popular authors at Family Tree mm-hmm. Magazine and be able to have them at your disposal to ask questions and get answers and really work through the, the material in a more in-depth way. Well, these sound wonderful for everybody listening. We're going to have a link in our show notes at familytreemagazine.com slash podcast to get you over to Family Tree University and all these great courses. Thanks again, Amanda. Thanks, Lisa. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode designed to help you fill up your genealogy tank. If you enjoyed this free podcast, please do us a big favor and leave us a five-star review in your podcast app. We so appreciate it. As always, I'll have links on the show notes webpage to everything we talked about today in this November 2021 episode. You can find the show notes at familytreemagazine.com slash podcast. Thanks again for joining me. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and you can visit me at my website, genealogygems.com, and add my Genealogy Gems podcast to your podcast queue. And then hop on over to YouTube. There you will find even more free genealogy content. There are videos waiting for you, both at my Genealogy Gems channel and the Family Tree Magazine channel. Until next time, have fun climbing your family tree.